I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Linda Van Eldick, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Kentucky. She leads the Sanders Brown Center on Aging, as well as the University of Kentucky Alzheimer's Disease Center in Lexington. Dr. Van Eldick is an expert in how the brain communicates with the rest of the nervous system, as well as neuroinflammation and drug discovery for neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. Welcome, Dr. Van Eldick, to Dementia Matters. Well, thank you. You are an expert in a very complicated field. So to start, could you share with us how the brain communicates with the rest of the nervous system normally and when there is an injury? Yes. So the brain is a very active organ. The the nerve cells connect with each other. They communicate with each other through chemical signals. So the nerves make a synapse. It's like a connection where the chemical signals go back and forth for the nerve cells to communicate. Now, not everybody knows it, but there are other cells in the brain that are very important for controlling the strength of that signal, the duration of that signal. And so I study those other cells that affect the synapse. They're called glial cells. There are a lot of different glial cells in the brain, but I particularly study the microglia and the astrocytes, which are very important in controlling the communication between the nerve cells, which of course is communicating throughout the brain. It's how our brain functions. So the overall category is glial cells, and then you study two specific types. Yes, and my favorite are the microglia. Microglia are the cells in the brain that um, produce the most inflammatory response. They're, They're surveying, they're like, people sometimes call them the macrophages of the brain. So they're surveying the environment, they're making sure that everything is correct, and if they see an injury or something wrong, they mobilize. So in essence, like the inflammatory system that many of our listeners will know, those cells work like the inflammatory system, but in the brain? Yes, and and actually inflammation in the brain is usually a good thing, just like inflammation in the rest of our body. It's how we fight infection, it's how we fight injury, how we bring everything back to the way it should be. Well, in the brain, it's the same way. If something disturbs the nerve cell, the microglia are all over it. They glom onto those nerve cells and they try to fix it. But sometimes if the injury is too strong or if it's a, a disease like Alzheimer's, the inflammatory response gets out of whack, out of control, and then it becomes bad. So how does this relate specifically to your work in Alzheimer's disease research? And I guess in other words, is that communication disrupted in people who have Alzheimer's disease? Right. So it looks like what's happening is this inflammatory response of these microglial cells. They're reacting to lots of different things. So they react to beta amyloid or tau tangles, which are the two hallmarks of things building up in the brain in this disease. But they also respond to um, damage to our cells as we get older, kind of like rust in the brain, you know, oxidation, um, 
changes in our membranes, our nerve cells start becoming less efficient as we get older. So the microglia are responding to all of those things, and they're continually making too much of these inflammatory molecules, which then becomes detrimental, even though they're designed to fix the brain. When you actually you speak to my next question, which is that many of our listeners will understand the concept of general inflammation, but neuroinflammation, which I believe is what you're talking about, is a bit different. So if you could explain neuroinflammation and then its relationship to just the general inflammation the rest of our body has. So neuroinflammation essentially just means inflammation that's in the brain because it's neuroinflammation, but it's, it's had a, um, a bad context because sometimes neuroinflammatory responses are designed to be beneficial, to repair injury or to bring things back to normal, to produce growth factors. Like after a traumatic brain injury, for example, the brain will respond to those inflammatory molecules and try to bring it back to normal and then try to repair the injury later. So neuroinflammation is usually ter- is the term used for the inflammation that's dysregulated or has gotten out of control rather than the usual good inflammation that we we are supposed to have. <laughs> and so if someone has too much inflammation in the lower part of their body, below the neck, is that somehow translate to above the neck in the brain? Not always. Uh, it, but one feature of as we age, inflammation gets higher all over the body. So people are familiar with rheumatoid arthritis or uh, you know, our joints as we get older. All of those are symptoms of having too much inflammation or an inflammation that's not in control. And it's the same way in the brain. As we get older, we get this chronic low level of inflammation that's too high from what it's supposed to be when we were younger. Now, that's not always bad, but there are specific aspects of inflammation that can affect the synapse. And that's kind of what my research is targeting, trying to block that inflammation that's driving synaptic and nerve damage without affecting the inflammation that needs to be there. And how does one measure neuroinflammation? Well, there are starting now to be some tests that we can use. You can measure inflammatory molecules in cerebrospinal fluid. Um, You can measure some inflammatory molecules in blood, like in plasma, but There, you don't know if it's actually come from the brain or from the body, uh, because it is blood. There are also some imaging methods now that people are exploring. They're not really great or specific, so it is still difficult to measure inflammation and say that this is specific inflammation in the brain. So I would imagine there is a lot of research looking at just how do we best measure it as well. In fact, there's a lot of work. It's called biomarker studies. People are very excited about looking at biomarkers in living individuals to try to see if we can both detect early changes in the brain, because we know that pathology builds up in the brain 10 to 20 years before anybody has any memory or thinking problems. And so we need to be able to say, 
this person is developing disease in the brain so that we can potentially intervene before any memory or thinking problems have happened. So in the field of Alzheimer's, as we're talking about what role or how does neuroinflammation get involved? What is it causing or what is it responding to? Well, it's kind of a, of a cycle. Alzheimer's is not a single cause disease. And many things that are happening as we get older cause inflammation. Among those are beta amyloid can cause inflammation. Uh, tau tangles can cause inflammation. Um, just changes in our brain, in our cells, as nerve cells start to become less efficient, that can cause inflammation. And then the downstream consequences depends on how long that inflammation is and how how strong it gets. So if it gets too activated, if these glial cells get too activated and put out too many of these inflammatory molecules, that is bad. But even a low level of chronic inflammation is also bad. And so it's kind of a cycle. It, It can cause synaptic damage, nerve cell damage, but then nerve cell damage is a signal for the microglia to activate and put out more inflammatory molecules to try to fix the problem then that can cause more nerve damage, and then that's more. So it's, it can be kind of a vicious cycle of inflammation, synaptic damage, more inflammation. And the way you describe the chronic inflammation, it's similar to what I would say to my patients about stress. Stress actually has a purpose for us, but too much chronic stress is a problem. And you would say the same for inflammation. Yes, yes. In fact, inflammation was designed as a mechanism to bring things back to normal, but when it gets out of control, then it itself can be a cause of damage. Do lifestyle behaviors have a role in neuroinflammation? Yes, um, you can stimulate um, good inflammation, if we want to say good or bad. Uh, you can you can stimulate more um, nerve function, you know, more plasticity, more communication between the nerve cells by things like exercise, uh, keeping your brain active, controlling your blood pressure, your blood sugar. We always say everything that's good for your heart is good for your brain. And, and so by keeping the nerve, the nerve cells more plastic, more healthy, more active, that reduces the inflammation as well because then the nerve cells are happy and going along the way they're supposed to go. Could you explain what you mean by plastic? So when I say plastic, it's a term that refers to the neurons being more efficient, communicating more efficiently, having stronger connections. It's called plasticity. It, it just means they're not rigid and stuck in one position. They're able to move and reconnect and recommunicate. And you alluded to something earlier about traumatic brain injury, and we get a lot of questions about what is the difference and how do they relate to each other. And so what role does traumatic brain injury and neuroinflammation play when we talk about just cognitive change? Well, traumatic brain injury is definitely a risk factor for later onset of dementia. It might be a different kind of dementia than Alzheimer's disease, but the symptoms are very similar. 
And what is known is that when you have a traumatic brain injury, it's been shown that you get a big burst of inflammation. It's like a big pro-inflammatory surge because of the getting hit on the head. And the microglial cells that are producing these inflammatory molecules, they can remain activated. It's been shown by a group in Alaska, Scotland, that 17 years after a single traumatic brain injury, the microglia still showed signs of being activated. So it, it is a big damage to the brain, and it doesn't really, uh, it, it causes damage whether it's, you know, a single really severe injury or whether it's a lot of repetitive, less severe, like concussion type of injuries. That's why there's a lot of interest these days in trying to pre prevent a lot of the um, traumatic brain injuries that happen in football players or in soccer players, especially young people whose brains are still developing. It's a very important area of research. And in my own clinic, I will often say to my patients, I really want you to protect your brain, so please wear a bike helmet. Please buckle up when you're in the car. And really, it's to prevent these kind of brain injuries that you're talking about. It's definitely true. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of states still don't have helmet laws, including, unfortunately, Kentucky, where I live. And so every time I see a motorcyclist going down the street without a, a helmet on, it just makes me cringe because I think, oh, if they fall off that bike, they're going to have so much trouble. <laughs> and we don't have drug treatments. No. And, and one of your other areas of interest is drug discovery. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping you could tell us, you know, where are we on drug development for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease? You know, there's a lot of exciting work going on right now. Unfortunately, in the past, we have been very myopic about how we've been trying to come up with drugs for Alzheimer's, and we've been targeting only one aspect of it, the amyloid, primarily. Now there's more recent work targeting tau, which is the other pathology. But this disease is much more than just amyloid and tau. We've got to target a lot of the different mechanisms. And it's, I always think of it kind of like a complex disease like HIV. When you just targeted one aspect of the virus, it didn't work very well. But when you got the triple cocktail, then you started to see effectiveness. It's going to be the same way with Alzheimer's. We're going to target inflammation, but we're also going to target other things. We're going to target, you know, protecting that neuron, you know, reducing our oxidative stress, you know, reducing amyloid, reducing the pathologic tau. You're probably going to have to have a combination therapy to really get effective therapies. And that's where the field is going. Are there any drugs in particular that are being studied that are using this multimodal approach? You know, the, unfortunately, it's really hard to do clinical trials with combinations of therapies. It's, it's starting. The FDA is getting more receptive to those kinds of trials, and the trials are, there are different kinds of designs of trials now where you can shift directions in the middle instead of going along for three years and then, oops, that didn't work, now we have to start all over. But um, I think the best combination is actually the lifestyle changes. I mean, that is a combination therapy. If you reduce all the, if you make all those changes in your lifestyle and you reduce your risk of later dementia, 
that's great. If we just delay the onset by five years, it's estimated we'd reduce the prevalence of Alzheimer's by 40-50%, which would be tremendous. Well, to end, do you think that drug development for prevention will be more successful than our current clinical drug trials? I think by the time a person has memory problems, there's been a lot of nerve cell loss. There's been a lot of damage in the brain. And it's much harder to repair something that's already broken than it is to prevent it from breaking in the first place or from slowing down that progression. So I think if we can, I think delaying the onset is probably the best bet right now. Prevention trials, I mean, that would be the gold standard if we could prevent it completely. Those trials are very expensive, very long, and you hardly would know if it works or not. If you can just delay and and the person could have another you know, five, ten years of, of high-quality life with keeping their memories preserved, that would be tremendous. You wouldn't actually have to stop or, you know, prevent the onset. You could just slow it down enough that it wouldn't matter anymore because then we'd be, maybe we'd be 120 by that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, until that time happens, it seems to me we really should address those lifestyle behaviors that are good for the heart, good for the brain, but potentially are reducing the bad inflammation. Yes. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for being on Dementia Matters. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.